Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility. I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. As you know, here at Within, our goal is to shift the conversation on who is in prison. And for us, that means not just speaking to the incarcerated folks within the Colorado Department of Corrections, but also to the staff that they interact with every day. Many people who work within Colorado's prisons have been instrumental in making this podcast happen, including Warden Ryan Long, who oversees the Denver Complex, which includes the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, where we record. Ryan Long began his career in the Colorado Department of Corrections in 2000 as an officer at Sterling Correctional Facility. Then he, re- he promoted to sergeant and case manager one, two, and three. He eventually made his way to Lyman Correctional Facility, where he was a major, and then returned to Sterling to take the position of associate warden. In 2017, he promoted to warden of the Denver Complex. He's held the position of warden here for just over two years. A fun fact about Ryan is that he likes to spend his free time traveling around the state, supporting his kids at their sporting events. Let's go talk with him. So I'm personally so thrilled to have Warden Long with us today because Warden Long has been a huge um, advocate for my work and has been incredibly supportive to me. And I really uh, value who he is as a warden in our state. And I think we're really lucky to get to to talk to him today. Thank you for being here, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So I have a lot of respect for Mr. Long. He is my warden at Denver Women's Correctional Facility, and uh, he is a breath of fresh air in this space. How did you become not, I mean, we kind of heard it in your biography, how you became a warden, but what, what was the journey? Like, can you just kind of, cause when you talk about it to me, it's like, it's awesome. It really is. So I want everybody else to know. Cause as an offender, it's like a different perspective to know that that's how you came to be. Right. Um, being a warden is awesome. Uh, although it, <laughs> although Ashley, um, presented it like it was very expeditious. It does not feel that way at all. Um, I sometimes I feel like days in prison are like dog ears, and I'm sure that everyone at the table can can relate to that. Uh, I started in Sterling in 2000 as an officer. Um, really, it's because I lived in an area that didn't have a lot of jobs, and so I had a couple of buddies that worked for the state, and they're like, "This is a great job. Uh, you should go and try it. It's excellent. They pay well, et cetera, et cetera." And a lot of things change between now and then. Um, but I was an officer. I very, very much enjoyed it. Um, at Sterling, although I was hired as an officer, I was, that was the first facility that ever put custody and control staff in food service um, serving lines, and that's where I started. And so that in and of itself, although it was highly stressful and not necessarily what I signed up for, that gave me a ton of perspective in reference to um, what the population goes through. Uh, it's much more 
of a working with as opposed to lording over. Um, sometimes custody and control is do this because of, and this is why, or there's a consequence. And when you're in a production area such as food service, it's critical to the f efficient operations of the institution that you put the meals out in an expeditious amount of time. So as opposed to standing on a line and bossing people, you have to figure out ways to work with people, um, you know, get them to do the job, get them to understand, gain buy-in. Uh, and so with that, it's necessary to create I mean, for lack of a better term, it used to be a dirty word in incarceration, but relationships and like real relationships, finding out, you know, who people are, um, really, really checking judgment at the door and like getting the job done for everyone's good. So that, so it was an excellent experience. Um, from there, I just like anyone else, I was ambitious. I tested. Uh, I made the cut and was a, selected as a sergeant. I worked the yard, um, yard security, graveyard swings days, uh, and then... Um, I tested for lieutenant and case manager, and I happened to come up a little higher on the case manager test. Um, what appealed to me in that is that y you have an impact. There, there's an ability there to converse with offenders one-on-one -on -one and case plan. And although case plan wasn't a buzzword when I became a case manager, that's essentially what we did. Um, you have an opportunity to assess risk and need, go through classes, place offenders in classes, work on parole plans, work with external stakeholders. So the draw for me was is the freedom that came with it and the ability to interact with multiple people. Um, the truth is, is that when I was at Sterling and a case manager, I had a caseload of about 100, but every I had Sunday, Monday off. So every Saturday, I would just kick my door open and have open hours. And then sometimes that's corrections related and sometimes it was just about talking about like the football games that are going to be on this weekend or that day and then it allowed me an opportunity to not only like learn and be taught but to invest in some of my caseload and have a different insight into what our job was because the truth is case managers are almost like one of those positions it's a very individualized position in an institution and staff um, sometimes believe that case managers just drink coffee and give out hugs to the offender population, that's <laughs> a little bit. hug? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it isn't. It's so much more involved. And the truth is, is that it can be an office job if you let it. But it's so critical. Um, and not just critical to the management of each individual, but it's a lit, your litmus test for the rest of the institution. If offenders, if you build rapport and they trust you, you'll understand what's going on in an institution. You can guide and direct, provide insight. And um, I think case management has evolved very, very much. But sometimes we get caught up in tools, you know, like we have CTEP, the Colorado Transitional Accountability Plan that assesses risk and need. And that's great. And it gives us direction. But there's so much more humanity into what being a case manager is other than identifying a risk and need and telling someone they need to meet it. And that's so um, I love that. It was very, very much my calling. Uh, I probably would have stayed doing it forever. But at the time, someone came to me and said, you know what, we're going to have openings. We really, really think that. Your ability to teach, your ability to communicate would benefit us. And as a CM2, you get to like lead people. You're a team leader. You get to teach. You get to how to use the technology, et cetera, et cetera. So I put in and got it and then did that for a couple of years. And then I became a CM3, which is a supervisor. And that is quality control components, um, chairing internal classification committees. We established incentive pods at Sterling, built processes to vet offenders to come in, um, also gave us the opportunity to assess offenders and provide them opportunities that they may not normally get, like allow them to go to the low side of Sterling or um, things like that and make recommendations. And then um, a previous warden that I had who is retired now uh, just approached me and we talked about the future and what it looked like 
and reasons that people want to promote. And at the end of the day, the truth is, is that we're all selfish in some way. So it's like, oh, we can make more money. You can do whatever. Um, but the truth is, it, it was at that time, it was more sold to me about, do you want to make a difference? Do, do you believe that your skill set, your understanding of offender dynamics, your ability to communicate would like benefit the department? And so um, I went home, talked with my wife adamantly, because if you're ever going to make a decision like that, you have to have support <laughs> or it won't work. And and then inevitably I put in um, for a major and I was appointed the ad administrative services manager at Lyman, which is over... ACA, ADA, litigation, training, case management, emergency management, and a couple other things that I can't remember right now. Uh, and so for three years, I was there. For a year and a half of that, I drove um, about an hour and 50 minutes one way, and then I lived in my camper in a KOA for about seven months. Are you um, serious? Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, wow. And then my family got tired of that, and so we, <laughs> they moved. Um and then I love that, and I probably, honestly, I, I could have stayed there forever. And then an opportunity to present it itself, um, you know, I saw that Sterling had an opening, and although that was an hour 50 back the wrong way, and I really didn't want to do it because I didn't feel like it was right for my family, um, I just felt an obligation. So I put in, and fortunately enough, I was appointed. And so for the next 13 months, I drove an hour 50 every day. <laughs> Um, one way back and forth to Sterling to be the associate warden there. And then fortunately, or I was very fortunate and um, a couple of wardens openings came up. I put in, tested well, interviewed, and then I was appointed as the, the Denver Complex Warden. Um, and it was probably one of the most challenging shifts and dynamics ever is from like a captain to a manager because you go from owning an area like a housing unit, um, a group of people to owning a, a, a much larger span of control and having real accountability to it. Warden was, was in and of itself a huge dynamic shift for me because you no longer go to being an associate warden who's over operations and supported by a warden and sometimes checked by a warden to you have statutory authority over everything that you foresee. And it doesn't mean that... You're a man. Well, I, somewhat. I mean, there's statutory. You have statutory authority over an institution, and yes, there are still um, state personnel board and, and laws and policies that guide it. But at the end of the day, what your where your organization goes, you get to lead and you decide. And um, you have to be very, very objective, conceptual, and very, very um, methodical, and have a large scope of understanding when you make those decisions. So for me, in the beginning, it was very, very overwhelming, um, and then I had to from the three facilities, the 770 staff and the almost 1,800 offenders determine like what were my priorities. And so at that point in time, I walked every facility, I observed them, I, I sat in yards for a while, I kind of walked around and talked to staff. And at that point in time, I determined at that time that DW was my gonna be my focus um, yeah, for the short term. How was it? You've worked with men this whole entire time in your career. How yeah. was it walking into a woman's facility? Um, <laughs> Can you talk about the differences? I, you know, I can. I'll tell you, before I came, a lot of the perception and the conveyances that I got from staff were, oh, gosh, like, buckle up. It, it was nothing like I expected. I expected it to be much more, um, like, minimal and complaints about dumb things and just, just you know, much more um, drama and emotion. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, those are true. That's true, but not in the way that I thought. You know what I mean? So number one, um, I was very taken aback uh, at the level of 
um, respect and curiosity that female offenders have. Number two, you watch like HBO and Orange is the New Black and all of that. And you hear about like family groups and people being dogs and all that. And none of that existed. None of that, um, for the most part, right. is, that I is, observed. Is that true, Denise? Yeah, well, there's, there is families, but not like to the, not the way the Orange is the New Black paints it out to be. That, that was very surprising to me. Additionally, uh, I was really, really surprised at how similar my perception, my, yeah, my perception of how female management mirrored male management. And although we had like instituted things, you know, gender responsive um, initiatives and things like that, in the end, the core communication still very, very much in my perception mirrored that of how we deal with males. I have a question. What's your favorite part of being a warden? What's the best part of your job? Wow. Um, man, that's a hard question. Uh, I think that it's um, being able to have a positive impact on people. So what I would tell you that that translates to me as our customers, but the truth is, is that the public, staff, and offenders are all of our customers. And so um, I appreciate all the nice things that you said, and you too, Denise, I very much appreciate. But I think that I would love to be able to take credit for that, but I think that's much more a reflection of the department and the organization other than it it is of me. Because the truth is I've been the same person and I am the same person, but the department is seeing um, how we manage and how we operate much differently and provided me the opportunity to be in the position that I'm in. You're a warden now, right? And you've been a warden for a few years. Yeah. Um, And you've worked in the department for 19 years, right? And I'm sure you've changed over that time. Your mind has changed. Your philosophies have changed. So how do you see prison? How would you define prison today? Man, I, honestly, um, we correctional staff, see how I wouldn't even let you call it a prison? <laughs> it Really, like it's translated and evolved where we don't refer to staff that work here as guards or, or that's, that's offensive to us. Almost like when I started, there was, there's a difference between a convict and an offender. Um, and so I think prison is a place that people have, they're punished. Sanctions are imposed upon them for what they've done wrong to people. And I think that's not what we are. So, so I would tell you that when I started way back when, um, that was my belief that it was prison and that everyone there was meant to be there and everyone needed to be punished for what they did, for what they do. And I think some of it is that's, that's the precipice of the word. I mean, that's like the definition of it in its entirety. It's a prison. It's meant to hold people and to make sure that the public's safe from you um, or from them and how that works. Um, well, in that dynamic, is it a, is it a, is it a punishment? Continual, Right. Or is being removed from society the punishment? Well, to you then. It's an excellent question. Yeah, to, to you me, then. <laughs> way to clarify. I would tell you that when I first started, I was very young, like in my early 20s. And so it was the latter. I mean, really, it was that it, was, it wasn't now. I really, really understand that punishment is being away from your family and, and suffering isolation and the loss and the things that come from that. But at that time, I didn't know that. And especially brand new, I think that. We all um, evolve thought process based on experience, time in a department, understanding like why we do what we do, what our mission is, um, why, why we each hold the role and responsibilities that we do. But when I started to answer your question wholeheartedly, prison wasn't, the punishment wasn't being isolated. The punishment was being there. 
and everything that came with it. And I don't think that I was alone in that thought. And I think that, to be honest with you, um, I'd love to give all the credit to Mr. Williams and, and all of those things, but I will tell you, even then, even then, 20 years ago, 19 and a half years ago, the shift had begun. We, we had begun shifting out of, um, and I don't even want to use that term, but shifting out of just having prison, just having you there, holding you, providing minimal items, minimal opportunities. Even then, we were shifting. I mean, we went through so many changes as a department that I've been a part of, and people in the room were there when busloads of offenders came from CSP and rolled in and we put them in pods and provided them thinking for a change. And I mean, I think as a department, Colorado has always strived to be, to be on the forefront of providing opportunity. Do we always? No. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. But I think that our leadership from way back has seen the writing on the wall and at least tried to move um, in that direction. And I think a component of that is as I have evolved and grown and matured and really, really probably became more aware of the people, you know, the humans that are here, not, not a demographic, not a population, not a culture that has changed the way that I manage. And that's, and that's hard. That's the hard part about it is that when you work inside an institution of this complexity, we have public staff and offenders that all are like at different places in that, um, that evolutionary or maturity track. And so new staff think a certain way, five-year staff think a certain way, 10-year staff think a certain way. And so how do you capture all that and invest and educate staff to understand that it isn't whether you agree or disagree, it's whether you understand who we are, what we're here to do, and how we provide benefits to everyone. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the number one core component of what we do at every level is customer service. It just is. We're a business, and we have to provide a service to everyone, whether you believe they deserve it, they don't deserve it, what it looks like. And I've been fortunate enough to be here and be part of your guys' conversations and be on the outside of some of your other productions. And I think that's a huge component of what it looks like, the hierarchies and totality and egregiousness of crime at the end of the day for us is all irrelevant. And it always has been. We have a service to provide to a demographic and we utilize tools to identify that. And then how do we do that the very best way that we can? And I think that's where we're growing. And You were talking about how it had started, the shift had started. Do you feel the structures that are in place within the department as it is now today, can they fulfill continuing to change or do those have to change also? No, I, I, think, I think we're more than on our way. I, I think that people have been in place and regardless of external factors, um, perceptions, societal norms, we are in a place um, in totality that we're absolutely, and, and part of when you talk about structure, my assumption is that you're asking about like executive structure, leadership structure, Correct. governor down. Yes. Absolutely. That's, that is a hundred percent. Yes. But there's other parts of it. I mean, there's, we've always talked about, not always, I have a perception that three things shape what we do, litigation, politics, and societal norms, how people see what we do, um, how people understand what we do, and then the message that is sent to them. And so corrections is like on the forefront, and not just because of the budgetary considerations, but really like public safety. What kind of obligation and op- um, do we have to our population and our customers? But what kind of opportunities do we provide? Because at the end of the day, here's the truth. Um, you can give anybody anything, and they choose what to do with it. And sometimes that's where we like lose track of things. We provide 100 things, and then, it, I mean, for goodness sake, if someone does something wrong, it has to be someone's fault. Well, there, there's a department that houses 18,000 offenders that it's easy to turn the foam finger back to and say, man, you guys failed. You didn't do your part. And the truth is, on occasion, um, we do fail. But I think more often than not, we really, really have a very much vested interest 
in everybody's success and providing people at least the opportunity to do the right thing, be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Um, but like I said, depending on how long you've been in, how old you are, what your experiences are, what your filters are, what you take from that is different. And that's our challenge is how do we shape that and present that in a way to every demographic and maturity level that they really understand that their best interests are in are our best interest. I mean, that's the truth. At the end of the day, good business leads to good outcomes and good outcomes lead to tailoring your service to the demographic that's receiving it. Therein lies the challenge for us. I mean, it's complex in every way. Can you recall any specific moments where something in you shifted or changed or was it kind of a slow burn or? <laughs> Good analogy. Um, <laughs> probably a slow burn. I don't think for anyone um, to include everyone at this table, you like a flip switches overnight and you understand where you live. But I think from when, from a sergeant um, to being a case manager and really dealing with people, number one, um, knowing like the depths of their like demons. When you're a case manager, you don't just provide risk and need assessments based on what someone needs. You have to know family dynamics, crime, history. You have access to all of that because those are all pertinent parts into establishing, number one, um, some sense of accountability, but number two, providing uh, your client the opportunity to get in things to address that, to provide enlightenment. And to do that successfully, in my opinion, you have to like have conversations and you have to get to know people or at least provide them the opportunity to get to know you because there are, there are people, um, you know, I, like I said, I had a caseload of a hundred and I would have, I mean, I, it's hard to say how many, but there was tons of, uh, offenders that I did have relationships with and I would see weekly. And there were some that I would have them on my caseload for a year I would schedule a meeting every month and they wouldn't come. I'd go to their door. How are you doing today? I'm doing grand. Do you need anything from me? I don't boss. Is there anything else? Do you want me to like tell you how much money you have on your account? What's your phone list look like? No, I'm good. And, th and that's just the world. And you have an obligation still to put yourself out there. But the truth is, is that they have to do that on their own and they have to like have faith in the system and you can't force feed that to anyone. So when I was a case manager and I really got to see who people were, um, where they came from, and, and the good things they were doing for themselves, that changed the way that I saw uh, incarceration as a whole and rehabilitation, to be honest with you, because that's where when a news story comes out and you see X, Y, and Z and no one did this, and then you're a case manager and you know what, what opportunities you provided for someone before they left, that's when it becomes personal. And like not necessarily personal in a good way. You're like, how, how in gosh, green earth... Would someone like represent this as fact when this isn't who we are or what we do? We care way more than this. Um, but that's also part of that societal norm, the stigma in which what we do, what we have. And the truth is, is that we're all people on both sides of the glass, in and out, and everybody makes mistakes and no one's perfect. The problem is, is that historically we capture the negative as opposed to capturing, you know, the 99 successes, we catch the one failure and the one failure defines who we are for the most part, in the public arena anyway. I think often that um, you walk in here and, and I hear it a lot is, well, my case manager should do this for me and they should do this for me. And at, at some point, and we've all talked about this, is who is accountable? And it does start with us, the offender, 
being accountable and going, I'm in prison and I have to do something different. Now, is everybody going to come to the awareness? I don't know. You know, it took me a while to get there, you know, because you want, I think often we feel wronged too. You know, we're like, oh, you wrong society. And we're like, well, you're wrong in me too, you know? And I think that's the mentality that you have to lose. And hopefully they grow out of it. And I know a lot, often it's not grown out of, it's not matured out of. And so it is the, they owe me, they need to work for me mentality. And that's where a lot of disrespect comes into, especially with officers at that level. And then it, it continues and it, it grows. So it is coming to the awareness that we are accountable also for moving past. Right. And I believe, you know, like you said, I agree with you. And this is a human business. And in order for everyone, the the whole department to move forward, everyone has to understand that this is a human business, that I'm a human being, but just because you work here doesn't make you any less of a human being. Right. And so, which, I mean, this is perfect, which leads me into my next question. You spoke about three points that shape prison and the direction of the department, right? Politics being one of those. And dealing with human beings and dealing, you know, engaging with staff and offenders um, or the clients, the customers, right, who, who live here, the residents, you know, of the prisons. How do you believe politics shape that? Not necessarily your political view or the political view of the governor or the, uh, the head of the department. Rather, what about the staff? Right. Because you have different political views depending on where you're at, the prison you're in, who works there. Right. How does that shape? Because you may have, you know, someone who is staunch in punishment in Sterling and you may have someone in Denver who is a staunch liberal. Right. So how do you balance that? How do you juggle those different philosophies? I, I think that's where um, the structure that the department has, has built and defined up to this point. So. So do politics impact what we do? Absolutely. I mean, I would be lying to you to say they don't. Here's what I'll tell you. I think that the everyday business and our objective has never changed. I mean, five years ago, seven years ago, we talked about case planning and we do it from intake and we got the CTAP and we went to the University of Cincinnati and got this huge, awesome system developed to identify risk and need. And I will tell you, I was a case manager before that. That's what we've always done. We just found a name for it and a system to capture it, an operating system. I mean, I think corrections from long ago was always our objective is to case plan, get people in jobs that fit them, get them in programs that benefit them. Um, but with that said, sometimes the ability or the access to different resources or to advocacy groups, restorative justice groups um, shifts with changes in societal norms, litigation and politics. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we get audited nationally every three years by the American Correctional Association, and that's to ensure that we're doing good business. That, that's the business model. Are you doing good business? Can you show it through measurable outcomes? Are you providing a safe, sterile, clean environment that people can do what they need to do? And so part of that is, is regardless of perceptions of individual appointing authorities, and there are 12 of them for the 20-some institutions, we we have policy, we have monthly meetings, we have deputy directors like that are regional directors over institutions that don't necessarily run an institution, but they provide oversight, guidance, direction, you have conversations. Um, we have a director of prisons, a deputy executive director and an executive director, and all of those are accessible to us to make sure that as much as we can, that we are parallel in thought process. And you said it, depending on where the facility resides, what the population looks like, they're all different. 
but at the end of the day, the goal is the same. And so I think that's where when, well, this is a be- the best example of it. We have offenders in the room, you from Sterling and, and Preston from DW. See, I don't even call your first name. I'm sorry. It's like a, I call Ashley her. Well, I know I do call her by her first name, so I can't use that. But <laughs> most people were like last names, and that's, that's a component of being raised in a paramilitary organization. But the truth is that's not really who we are anymore. We are in organizational structure and in emergencies, but the rest of the time we're a business. And, and we are judged based on measurable outcomes, how those things come, you know, evidence-based practices. And so that is where um, I think the department has done a great job in identifying leaders that understand those things and aren't just caught up in necessarily the data, but understand the human element and how you have to implement and execute those. Because that's the hardest part. It's easy to have innovation. It's hardest to implement it. It's hard to get the tires on the road and like get moving forward because historically in this business, that's not what moves us ahead. What moves us ahead is being command and control, black and white, knowing that if you do this, we do this. If this happens, this is how we respond. And so sometimes that those are the struggles that come with it, just like this podcast, for instance. All the logistics and semantics and all of those things that we do are very, very important, but this isn't necessarily how we've always operated. And so for some staff who have been here a very long time and are confident in the culture of that they know that there's a response to every action, it makes them uncomfortable. And the truth is, that's, that's a, it's a good thing because change is inevitable, um, but it also makes them better problem solvers, more independent thinkers, and then they are better. Um, they can model pro-social behavior better to the offender population, stakeholders, public, etc. Well, I was going to just be off topic completely. I want you to know, and this is probably a good thing. It'll make you feel better. It was really hard for me to get out of one prison the other day and come into another prison. So just so you know, your Boom. staff is doing a good job. Right <laughs> I mean, yeah, we have to we have to take a moment to shout out to the, the incredible staff um, in the Denver complex who have been so accommodating and gracious to us. I mean, we are doing something that has never been done before. We are bringing female, you know, incarcerated females, um, over to a men's facility and, and busing in men from another facility for us all to work on this. And people have been so accommodating, um, and walk you from one over here. And it's like, and I get the looks and they're like, really, you need to go to DR. What do you need to go to DR for? And then it opens up the conversation to what we're doing. And I've not met any negativity from staff. Um, they're excited. They want to know when this happens. You know, when can I hear it? How do I hear it? Um, so it, it lets me know that the, that the shift is there and their people are seeing the people in this, not just the, and I just off topic totally. How do you feel like, cause I remember when we were called inmates and now we're offenders. Do you think there's still a change chance or a change that we could be just residents one day to yeah, where it whole, would wholeheartedly to where, because I feel like um, that we lose the humanity in that, that I'm, I'm just a fender pressing and we go eat in the chow hall and things like that. So that's just something off topic, but, uh, I think we're moving that way. I think, um, would you think that's like, like a definition of rehabbing the individual wholeheartedly? I, I think that that's sorry. I think the term, um, one and then number two, just like, look at everyone in this room has green shirts on, right. And green pants and white tennis shoes. And some of that is, is historical. That, that's how you differentiate 
one from the other. It's how you identify. And I think as we move forward and when we, when we implement normalization principles to corrections, those will be things that will change. You know, how you look, what you're allowed to have, um, the way in which we address you. You, m- Many of you know there, there are many things um, on the horizon, but we, as a department, if someone identifies with a diff- different gender, then we are obligated and or, you know, to call them offender, but we identify with that person as to what gender they identify with. And that that's a component of progression and like recognizing people for who they are. It doesn't mean we manage them different. It doesn't mean they get um, freedoms or liberties or privileges that are different than others. But what it means is that we are recognizing them for who they are. And that, and that's important whether you agree with it or disagree with it. it it's just the humanity piece at one level. It's just one example of that shift as a group of like, what does rehabilitation really mean? So can you define what your definition of rehabilitation is? And then what that is as you being a warden of a, of two, three facilities, you guys and all your questions about definitions, right? So, (laughs) so what I can tell you is I don't speak for the department, but, but I believe that everyone in the department is fairly the same. Rehabbing is providing an environment that provides you the opportunity to better yourself and have more value in what you do, who you are, regardless whether you're here for a week a year or a hundred years, you can bring more value to the environment that you're in and become like improve your quality of life or others' quality of life through actions, education, um, et cetera. So although some normalization principles speak more to material items and opportunities, and I think that's more the normalization principle behind that is, is reintegration into society, understanding and seeing what that really looks like as opposed to Every door that you walk up to, you wait for it to open and it opens every day. Because when you get out, that's not the case. You know what I mean? You got to push the door, unlock the door, do whatever. And so a component of our evolution is that we're going to evolve in those things. But rehabbing doesn't, the, the core component of it for us doesn't change. It's, it's staff members bringing humility and transparency to what they do, um, bringing humanity into what we do through, you know, respectful conversation, um, understanding differences, filters, preference, providing expectations, um, enabling people to make their own decisions and be accountable for them. Because that's the other part that sometimes we lose is that society in general uh, and institutions um, are safe. I I believe they're very safe, but they're not always safe. And so we have an obligation to make sure they're safe. But when we do so and when we respond or we remove people who are, you know, engaged in an altercation or something, it isn't just you're removed and you're punished forever. Why? Like, how did it occur? Why did it occur? And what are we going to help you with to, like, be past that? You know, addiction, arrested development, violence, those are things that people get used to as coping mechanisms. So what do we provide um, in addition to? How do we augment that and cognitively address that thought process lapse and then maybe you'll make a different decision next time. So switching gears, when I was a child, I was incarcerated in uh, the Gilliam Youth Service Center. And to me, over prison overcrowding was real then because they used to hold about like eight of us in one cell. Is, is prison overcrowding real to you? And if it is, what are the effects of it? It's a good question. It's a hard question because there's multiple layers to it. I think same thing that you talked about with rehabilitation, that's hard to quantify because when you look at populations compared on how many people are incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera, um, that plays into it. I will tell you, personally speaking, in the Colorado Department of Corrections, with the institutions that we have currently, we are we are experiencing overcrowding. We, we're under 1% or 2% vacancy rate. 
for, I mean, a year. So to answer that question, um, semantically and, and literally, we are right now. Um, overcrowding has tons of side effects. And I think for this conversation and like shifting the conversation a little bit, I think really um, we probably haven't done enough or I haven't done enough, honestly, to recognize staff and all that they do. Um, overcrowding can lead to violence and um, degradation of cleanliness and things like that. And none of that's occurred. N none of that. And that's not me. Um, I think that is the professional ability of our staff, not only to, to manage through those things, but to really, really understand why we do what we do and then be willing to, to implement it. And I think, you know, I talked about the shift, but X amount of years ago, we shifted from administrative segregation. And, and as a department, we told people we were doing it. It was part of the strategic objectives, but I lived at a level that I didn't feel like we got all the reasons and why it was kind of just a general overview and do it. And here's the truth. We did it. It's, administrative segregation doesn't exist in the Colorado Department of Corrections, and I didn't do that, and none of our executive team did that. Our staff did that, and they continue, regardless of what we give them, where they're at, or, or what we expect, to like do the very best of their ability and to work with populations and et cetera. I mean, I can't list one facility that has that has beds to move with where they want to include all three of mine, um, and so I think that's a huge, huge part of effective management of bed capacity, whether it's good or bad. And when it's good, you do have much more flexibility in how you program and opportunities you offer, but we still handle our business every day being as crowded as we are. Even though ADSEG was supposedly gotten rid of, there it took a long time for the actual process to change. There is still 23-hour lockdown. No. 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 Explain further. So what we have in place now are what we call management control units. And in a management control unit, although you are in a physical plant, um, that is similar to that of administrative segregation. You're allowed four hours out a day. You go to programming. You're provided opportunities to come out with up to eight other offenders, and the placement is no longer than a year. So you can be placed in a designation inside of ma a management control unit, and then you can progress to like a CCTU, which is a transitional unit, and then you move your way out. So no longer is it where you're 23 down and you have no interactions with anyone. Those don't exist. So at a minimum, they come... Um, Fenders and management control units, which is DW and Sterling, come out four hours a day and more. I mean, they get table time, they get rec time, programming time, and we've we've we have extended ourselves and done so much innovation and in having the ability to do that. Additionally, we have minimized the ad seg or that old ad seg population leaps and bounds. How, I mean, so with all that, I, this is the this is where I wanted to go with this is how do you say we had to change it because we finally realized that those people that we were kept in solitary confinement for years on end, we had to change that. Do you? Does the department as a whole, I don't know if you want to speak on it. Uh, and we can edit any of this yes. out, Ryan, if you don't want to. <clears throat> Draper you, can probably answer it too. Well, <laughs> no, do you feel like, hey, that was, that was wrong? Why no. did, no. You no. think they should always, you think that should have already been done, done so? No. Um, I think that, that we're... We're evolving and learning as we go. I think that the change and the ability to provide people an opportunity and to interact with them on a consistent basis was absolutely needed. Um, and I think, but I think as we move forward and we, Colorado does lead the nation in that change. I think that we're still growing though and we're finding better ways to do it. Because at the end of the day, we talked about it. Um, 
you intrinsically believe it or you don't. And there are some some offenders still that exist that are innately dangerous. They just are. It's it's thought process. It's it's how they see the world. But that doesn't mean that everyone is. And I think that's where we're changing, shifting, is that we're interacting with them and we're not like throwing away the key or locking them up. And then additionally, we're empowering other um, offenders in the population to interact with them and maybe initiate intrinsic change through them, like utilizing you want to make a difference and you live in an institution, then we're going to provide you the opportunity. And I think that's part of, well, I don't think that is part of Mr. Williams' vision as we move forward. If you've done something forever and it's not working, then you're obligated to try something different. Here at Within, we have a resident poet. His name is William Eskram, and he's a resident in DRDC. During our interviews, Will sits in the corner of the vault, which we've come to call Will's Corner, and he writes poems, poems for the people who we're speaking to, poems that reflect their stories. And today's poem is called Fairness, and it's for Warden Long. Fairness. Balanced by truth and ambition, promising nothing but a strong sense of will, power at heart, a giant of intellect, humble as a state of art, unperfect by any means, deep and mysterious in time, a heart of gold untold, with a collective mind, finding a purpose in life, with not many words to spare, refusing to be nothing but a rebel at heart, and a caring sense of fair. Next time on Within. Damon Davis, resident at DRDC. My cell represents my grave, and I get out. And the infirmary represents the graveyard to where I'm the caretaker. And you just try to make it as pleasant, even though it's a cemetery, as pleasant as it can be, you know what I mean, for those people. We wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado. So we started a newsletter. It's called Reverberations from Within. If you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it, visit our website at thisiswithin.com. If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DUPI founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard. Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com. <laughs>